The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Things We All Carry. This week I sit down with Brian. Brian has been in the fire service for a total of 19 years between his volunteer and career service. My first contact with Brian was about 18 months ago when I reached out to him after a tragedy and he's been a friend and supporter ever since. Sharing your personal history doesn't come easy and as you'll hear in the show, Brian doesn't enjoy public speaking but I think he was eloquent and very forthcoming throughout. I appreciate the fact that he disregarded his fear and joined me for this conversation. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Enjoy the show. So again, without trying to butcher your introduction, we can start and see if I can prevent myself from making a fool of myself. How about that? Yeah. Yeah, uh, me too. Ah, you'll be just fine. Trust me. If I can do it, anybody can do it. All right. Joining us today on the show is Brian. He's out of Virginia. He's been a firefighter for 19 years, presently a lieutenant in his, his department. He's here to talk about some family history. He's going to talk about some, a couple of calls, not too many. And he's going to talk about a friend of his. And we'll get into some of the things he's experienced, how he's trying to deal with some stuff and where he is right now. So I will let Brian introduce himself, give you a little bit of a family background and we'll go from there. How you doing, Brian? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. So yeah, I was born and raised in Centerville, Virginia in 1983. I guess the first thing that kind of happened to me in my childhood, my parents divorced at five, but I don't really, I don't have a whole lot of recollection of it. I don't have any memory of my parents fighting. I don't have anything that sticks out. I don't even recall my mom moving out. It's like she was just there and then she was gone. The good news was after the divorce, though, my parents stayed pretty close. She would come and, and hang out for the holidays and, and spend the night. And so they tried to make it as easy for me as possible. Both my parents were law enforcement officers. My dad was federal. My mom was local. So it made more sense after the divorce for me to stay with my dad who worked regular bankers hours nine to five rather than with my mom being on shift work. But because of that, I felt like I had a, a certain place in public safety and mainly as a police officer or some kind of law enforcement. And so from a young age, I knew what I wanted to do. I'm one of those kids that actually, you know, I want to be a firefighter and here I am. But growing up, I was always the smallest, the runt of the litter, if you will, amongst my friends. So I was always the one that got picked on. I was always the one that got made fun of. I was always the one that, that took the brunt of everything. I learned at a young age to, to almost start internalizing stuff and not speaking about it, not talking about it. In my pursuit for public safety, when I was in high school, I took a criminal justice class. I graduated high school in 02, but I went after high school, I ended up going to a volunteer fire station in the area and, uh, and applying as a volunteer that didn't work out due to some issues. So then I talked to a friend of mine whose brother worked for Prince William County and he sent me over to, to station 11, to Stonewall, now Stonehouse. So 
that worked out for me. I started there in January of 03 and I've been in the fire service ever since. I continued to volunteer at Stonewall until 2016. And then I got hired by my current department in April of 2008. So let's talk about high school a little bit. Cause you said you, you learned to internalize in high school. Right. And it was because of being picked on, I'm asking about it. It's the internalizing part. What did that look like for you? It's been a long time, but it, I think, I think over the years I've developed a complex. I've always felt like almost like I was never good enough. Almost. I always had to do something to impress people that I wasn't, I wasn't cool enough just the way I was. I've talked with a list for years and that's been a big running joke for a long time that the longest I can remember was back in, I think, seventh grade that it started be becoming a joke. And because of that, like, I hate public speaking. I hate standing in front of people talking, even guys I know or gals I know or people I know. How did you deal with it in high school? The internalization? Did I didn't. Okay. So you didn't have any outlets? No. Okay. No, I didn't deal with it. I just, again, I just put it away and just went on with my life. And if it wasn't, nothing was terrible. Okay. It's not like I was getting beat up on a regular basis. I actually had all my friends that were, that picked on me. It was in fun and games, but I was just the littlest one. Gotcha. But if anybody else outside of our circle tried messing with me or anything like that, then they had my back and it was, so it was just. What they thought of, of as good fun, you were starting to take on board and keep in. My next door neighbor actually growing up, one of the things he used to tell me, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to toughen you up. Okay. So I, that sounds about right for the time period. That was late eighties, early nineties. So after high school, you say you get into the volunteer side of the firefighting and you start an O3 at Stonewall Jackson volunteer fire. Yep. How does that go? How does, how, how do you find that? A friend of mine, his mom used to, or was having a Fairfax County police recruit rent out of her basement while she went into the, or while she went through the police academy. Her brother, turns out her brother was a career guy in Prince William at the time he was stationed 16. This is back in 2002. No, I'm sorry. 2000. Yeah. 2002, late 2002. So he was, I went to 16 thinking I was going to volunteer at 16. I didn't know any better. I didn't know anything about the County. And he told me, don't come here. Like you won't get any experience. It's a slow station. Go try going over to 11 and they, they're a busy company. You'll learn a lot. You'll get a lot of experience. So that's how I ended up there. However, the, I ran my first probably my first traumatic call previously at the other department that I was trying to volunteer with. And it was a, a motorcycle accident. Got on a motorcycle, crossed the double yellow line and went head on with a, an SUV. And I just remember standing there. I'm just riding as a, as an observer. I'm not, I don't have any gear. I'm not certified in anything. So I'm just watching these guys do CPR on, on this motorcycle ride. I've never seen anybody do CPR as they're bagging this guy. They're using a bag valve mask to breathe for him. The air is coming out of his ears. And uh, I hear one of the guys say, my fingers just slipped up inside the back of his head. And to me, that's other than, well, that's the most traumatic thing that I have seen. And I wasn't even like up front. I was just off the sidelines watching. How old, 18 at the time? I was, yeah, I would have been 18. Okay. I would have been 18. Now, again, back then, nobody, uh, not that it bothered me a whole lot, but nobody pulled me aside and said, hey, you okay? You doing this? And, that, and that's. Again, that's about par for the course for this time, this time frame. What people didn't know, and the next story I'll tell you is that on New Year's Eve, I'm sorry, New Year's Day, 2001. And again, I told you that my mom would always come and stay for the holidays so to try and make it as normal as possible for me growing up. New Year's Eve, 2000, my mom came to stay the night. We were going to do a bringing the new year together. 
And uh, my mom had been talking about going for a motorcycle ride the next morning. And, and I was supposed to go with her. The next morning came New Year, you know, New Year's Day, January 1, 2000. And oh, I said 2000 earlier. I meant to say 1999. Okay, so 1999 and into, into 2000. 2000. Yep. So January 1, 2000, my mom woke up, woke me up to go for the motorcycle ride. And I decided I didn't feel like going. I was tired. I didn't, we stayed up late. So she left and about a couple hours later, we get a phone call and my dad comes downstairs and says that your mom's been in a motorcycle accident. I didn't know a whole lot of details. All I knew is that they were ground transported to, to Mary Washington. And then, so we, me and my dad packed up and we drove down to Mary Washington. Right about the time we got down there from Centerville, Virginia, we got there just in time for them to tell us hey, we're flying her up to Fairfax. Okay. So we packed the truck up and went back up to Fairfax, which that was a probably about an hour and a half ride. By the time we got there, they weren't giving us much information. They wouldn't tell us anything other than that she was alive. So it was about, it was, if I remember right, it was probably four or five hours that we're sitting there waiting and they finally let us back to see her and we start figuring out and seeing what's going on. And it turns out she had paralyzed herself from the neck down. So immediately the guilt set in for me. If I had gone on this ride, would this have happened? I don't think it would, I don't think it would have. And then I also think my mom probably is thankful that I didn't go. So it's a kind of a double-edged sword. It's definitely a double-edged sword. But my mom had a big, long journey ahead of her. And it was a obviously a life-changing event for her, a life-changing event for me. It meant my mom had to retire from her job in law enforcement. She spent two weeks in the ICU at Fairfax. She then did, and I apologize, my time frames may not be accurate. She did, I think, six months in a rehab facility. Learn the trying to learn to walk again and all that. And thankfully, she did learn to walk again. She jokes and calls herself the Crip Keeper because <laughs> she walks like a cripple. But she she even started riding again. Now she had to ride a trike. She didn't have the balance for two wheels. But that was some good news. But it's still that that guilt still. Eight. What a, I was what I was sixteen years old. I'm thirty eight now. So all these years later, that I still have that guilt. Yeah, I can see that. It's almost akin to some survivor's guilt. Yeah. Uh, even though she didn't pass away, obviously, yeah, survivor's guilt. The uh, That first call, that first motorcycle accident brought back some memories. Obviously not memories of me being there. I wasn't there. I didn't see it happen, but just the thought and how it could have been worse. This guy's, they're not bringing this guy back. It's quite the connection, though, between right. what your mom went through and then th that being the first thing you witness. My first, yeah, my very first traumatic call was, was that. That was my first dose of reality. And then you come to Stonewall in 2003. Explain so, Stonewall a little bit. So Stonewall, Stonewall Jackson's part of the Prince William County system. I guess I should call it Stonehouse now. Back then it was Stonewall Jackson. It's a combination of volunteer career department or yeah, department with inside, inside the Prince William County department. At the time when I joined, Stonewall had a really good reputation. A lot of active members, one of the busiest stations in the county. And it's first due, it's got a very diverse first due. It's got a tank farm, it's got railroad tracks, it's got commercial, it's got industrial, it's got residential. It has a major highway that runs through it. Um, it's got rural, it's got suburban. And then in the next due over, there's an airport in Manassas. So you can see a little bit of everything there. Now, I sit, I say that what I will say is that after listening to some of the other podcasts, I consider myself lucky that in 19 years in the fire service, I haven't had to deal with some of the things that some of these other people have seen, which I have my own traumas, but some of their trauma is stuff that I haven't thankfully had to deal with. Yeah, I think, and I'm happy you say that because I haven't addressed that directly on the show. That's one of the things that I'm trying to get people to realize is that it's so personal. 
Yeah. Your trauma is your trauma. Yeah. How it affects you and what you take away from it is what you take away from it. And it doesn't matter what, say, Chris out of Utah saw. Right. It doesn't matter. He had some, he had different cards dealt, but they still affect you somehow. Sure. And so that's been the whole point of the show is being that trauma is your trauma. But let's bring these stories out because I think the stories, as I've said in in some of these intros, it's universal. Sure. And I think it's important to, to at least tell some of the stories to see how people get to where they, they end up. Yeah. And then, without, without glorifying some of these stories. Sure. Yes. And I agree with you. I think it's very important to get the whys out. But yeah, over the course of my career, again, I haven't had to pull a burned body out of a fire. I haven't had to do CPR on a baby. I haven't had to do some of the things that these other people have done. And I consider myself fortunate that I haven't had that, but I know it's coming. I still have a long time to go and eventually it's going to come around. And I guess now it's just a point of knowing ahead of time how to deal with that. I, I had a call back in 20, I believe it was 2010 and it was a, we got called for a, dis, a stoppage of breathing and we get there and it's, we walk into a chaotic scene. The whole family's downstairs in the first level and I hear what sounds like an older gentleman screaming his son's name. And we, so we go upstairs and we come across a 13 year old boy in a bathroom who had hung himself on the back of the bathroom door with a belt. And the whole time that we're trying to, we're trying to get people into the bathroom and work on him. And his dad's sitting there yelling, get up, Connor, get up, Connor, wake up, get up, Connor. And unfortunately he had, he was passed. There was nothing we could do. I, I remember looking at him and I still remember seeing the ligature marks on his neck from the web belt with the metal grommet circles that you know, about an inch apart around the belt. And even to this day, like the name, I can't hear the name Connor without immediately going right back to that scene where his dad is. And it was over grades. He hung himself over grades. Over, but he got a bad grader and his dad got in on him. And so you can imagine not only us having the right, but how his dad felt. And that's what we were told that by the family is after. So that was, that was tough. That was, and that, that was, that's fortunately, uh, up up to this point, that's the youngest suicide victim I've had to deal with or come across. I shouldn't say deal with, but we, again, we put it aside and I'm still pretty young in the fire career at that point. And nobody asked me, are you okay? Nobody, we went back to the firehouse and we continued our day. Yeah. It's, that's a theme, obviously that we all, we run these calls and then you're expected to be ready immediately to run the next call. And then even earlier than that, my first really traumatic suicide was a gunshot, a self-inflicted gunshot to a, a gentleman that for all intents and purposes, he should have been deceased. But when we got there, he was still breathing. And so we had to get him out of this bedroom and we had to carry him out and we called for a helicopter for him. But as we're carrying him out on the backboard, his we didn't have a whole lot of time to secure him down. We just threw him on a backboard to get him out. And I was carrying his head and his head rolled over and the whole right side of his head is missing. His head rolled over and landed on my hand. And to this day, I can still feel the warm feeling of his brain resting on my hand. So that's quite the feeling to have on your hand. Yeah. And especially I'm 24 years old. Again, I haven't experienced a whole lot of trauma or seen a whole lot of gruesomeness up to this point, but this was, this was by far the worst one as of to date for, for then. Oh yeah. And, but you keep saying, I haven't seen a whole lot, but if you take it, if you take your experiences and apply it across the board, you have seen compared and, and that's where, I'm, that's where we get into that comparative thing. So yeah, obviously I've dealt with some suicide stuff, but never anybody, never anybody close to me. 
Uh, fast forward a couple of years, 2010, I'm 26 years old and my first daughter's born. And at about six months old, I started going through a, a custody battle with her mom and wasn't for, for full custody. I just wanted to get, I was trying to get overnights at the time. And so going through that and going to court and going, going to see a lawyer and doing all this, it played a toll on me. And I started doing a lot of drinking. Now I had already been drinking for a little while. Started drinking when I was 16 years old. I was still in high school and alcohol soon became a friend, even at that young of an age. And now obviously I was limited to being under 21, getting it. But once it seems like once I turned 21, it was all bets were off. And I started using alcohol a lot. And maybe I didn't realize at the time, but to self-medicate. So, you know, now my daughter's here. We're trying to figure out what we're going to do for overnights. Her mom is a dispatcher for a neighboring jurisdiction. So, you know, her schedule was weird. I was on day work at the time in my, in my department. So I was only working Monday through Friday, 10 hour days. And I would get my daughter every weekend or every other weekend. And I would get her Friday night through Sunday night. Now, the problem was is that, and maybe now I look back and I, I can understand why her mom had some reservations. I would get her Friday evening and then her mom would pick her up from her on her way back from work. And then she'd drop her off again Saturday morning on her way to work and then pick her up Saturday night when she got off work. So you you were only seeing her during the day. Gotcha. And then it started to cause some problems because there was a couple of times where she was supposed to drop her off to me in the morning so she'd get to work and I overslept or I, you know, and so she ended, there were a couple of times she had to take my daughter, take our daughter to work with her. And then I had to get up and be like, oh crap, and drive to her work and pick her up from her, which obviously that could cause some issues for her. So of course, again, I was... 26 years old, I was heavy on the bottle and I was really selfish. I gave up a lot of time with my daughter, either being at the firehouse or being out with friends and so like this. So I definitely think that I also carry some guilt now from that. Me and my daughter's relationship, I think we have a decent relationship, but not as good as it should be. I look at the relationship I have with my 12-year-old versus the relationship I have with my four-year-old who actually lives at home with me, with my now current wife. And there's definitely a difference. So during this period, you recognize that you're drinking yep, and you recognize that you're letting her down. What do you do? So I went to, I went to one of the lieutenants at work and I, I did an EAP request. I didn't know anything about therapy. I didn't know anything. And back then, obviously mental health wasn't really high on the radar. It was there because obviously we have EAP and stuff, but so he helped me out. We got, I got myself, I secured myself an appointment with the EAP therapist and, and I had one session and talked a little bit about what was going on in my personal life. And all he could seem to focus on was the fact that I was in the fire department and he, but he didn't really ask me anything about what do you guys, what do you deal with in the fire service? It was more, oh, I know a couple guys in the fire service. Do you know this guy? Do you know this guy? Do you know this guy? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I've heard the name or no, or whatever. Like we don't all know each other. I don't, I don't know Jim in California. So after that session, I, I had a bad taste in my mouth and I stopped going. I didn't go back to the EAP. I didn't, I, I just figured therapy's not for me. I'll deal with it my own ways, which was continuing to drink. Again, I was working day work. I was working seven to five, which got me off right in time for happy hour and working. There were plenty of bars between my house and the firehouse for me to stop at every night or just go home and drink and then get up and go to work the next morning and do it all over again. Yeah, that's quite the cycle. And I've 
I talked to a couple of guys who've claimed that that same cycle, of course, and it, it's a pattern amongst us in the fire department or in the fire service, excuse me. So that was 2010, correct? That was, yeah, that was 2010, 2011. Uh, it was a time frame. So you're working day work, 2010. And I know we're going to talk about something that I've talked about on a previous issue or excuse me, that I've talked about on a previous episode. And uh, I don't know if you want to get into that now with Marcelo. Yeah. Just a little background. I know Marshall went over. Marcelo. If, if listeners want to catch up on the story of Marcelo Trejo, yeah. episode seven with Marshall, he gets into some depth with Marcelo because Marshall worked with Marcelo in his fire station when, when all this took place. So episode seven with Marshall is the best place to get the complete background on Marcelo, but I'd love to hear your take on it as well. Yeah. So I met Trejo while he was assigned to 11 when I was volunteering there. Um, and we, we developed a friendship, not nearly as close as some of these, some of the other people that, that knew him, but close enough. We obviously had run some calls together. We hung out with each other at the firehouse. He was a, just a bright, funny, charismatic guy. And then he ended up, one thing I didn't mention, I was big in the baseball growing up. I played baseball pretty much my entire life until like my sophomore year of high school. And me and Trejo had talked a lot about baseball and he ended up mentioning that he's a player coach on a, on an adult league team. And I said, okay, well, that seems cool. Let me sign up for that. And he basically recruited me to come play and a couple other county guys on the squad. So I went and played and had a good time. And I, the season I'm pretty sure it just ended or maybe it hadn't ended yet. I can't remember, but July 4th, 2014, I was out and about and I got a phone call from a friend that, that told me Trejo committed suicide. And at the time I was, I was driving and I told my girlfriend, I got to pull over. I'm going to need you to drive. And so that was just the shock of that was no way. Are we sure? But yeah, I got, I ended up getting more confirmation. And the next day I went down to my buddy's house and I was hanging out. He was the one that originally called me. Now he didn't know, he didn't know Trejo, but he knows he had some kind of insider information that whatever, but yeah, that was the first friend that I've had that that had committed suicide. So, and again, there's obviously some things are changing nowadays, but back then it was, back then it was, well, why would he do that? He's got this beautiful daughter at home who's young and he was the, one of the happiest guys I've ever seen. I just didn't understand. And it was a hard pill to swallow. Like, how could you do this? Why would you do this? You left everything behind. I didn't understand the I guess the, the mentality behind it that I get now that I have a little bit more of a understanding. It's interesting you say that because I've had these discussions at work. I've talked to people who've turned 180 degrees on this subject. Not that they support suicide. Obviously nobody really supports suicide, but the subject of why or right. how could they do it? And it's interesting to, to, to talk to people and, and hear that their take has changed completely because now they understand that it's this sickness. It's not. It's not a greedy act and it's almost like they feel like they're doing a favor and to see that, that, that group think kind of start to turn and not be angry about it in a sense, but to be I, almost understanding that it's a sickness. Yeah. It, it doesn't make it any easier, but cause no, it definitely doesn't but, make it easier. So that was, that was a tough build as well. I struggled with that for a while. I still do. And it's, it still, it still sucks. And it, it, and he's still fresh in my mind, especially as we're getting here four days away from July 4th, it, it sucks that when something happens, something traumatic like that happens on a, 
what's supposed to be a fun day, the effect it can have on your feelings for that day. You almost don't look forward to it anymore because you know you're going to be thinking about it. The trauma takes you right back. Like you'll always remember that day because it was the 4th of July or whatever day that, and it may be just a random day for somebody that just, and we'll get into another one here shortly. So I was having some trouble with that. So I, I decided to try and give therapy another chance. And one of the guys at work gave me an, a, the name of a therapist that he had been seeing. So I went and saw him and he got me on, he was the one that, that I guess that, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It advised or suggested medication. And I've always been one. I don't want to take medication unless I absolutely need it. I don't like to like other than Advil, if I don't really need it, I don't want to take it, but I figured it, it can't hurt. I'll give it a shot. Now I, I went and had a couple sessions with this guy and then I had to go find, I didn't have it. He's not a psychiatrist, so he couldn't prescribe medication. So I had to go find a personal, I didn't have a personal care physician at the time. So I, he was like, well, I need you to go find a personal care physician, someone that can prescribe you the medicine and I can give him the recommendation. I said, okay. So I, I went and did that and then I got on the meds and they put me on Lexapro. I was taking that for about three years, but I didn't, I never felt a difference, but I wasn't sure if it was just because I didn't have a basis for comparison, but I didn't feel like I was getting any better. I didn't feel like my irritability was changing. I didn't feel like my depression or anxiety or anything was changing. And one thing you should know is that I hate going to the doctor. My, my anxiety takes over and I feel like I'm everything is going to be wrong. And I'm scared to find out what I'm, what they're going to tell me what's, and up to this date, I've been relatively healthy. Nothing's ever really been. So then 2017 comes, my second daughter was born and my wife and I decided to do what's called a Medimap for her. It's something that the hospital suggested. And so we went ahead and got that done. So Medimap basically is a they do some blood testing, I think, that, that'll show deficiencies in medication and how they'll react with her body specifically. So when we got the, when we got the results back, it, it showed that she had a deficiency with Lexapro, that Lexapro wouldn't be effective on her. So I started putting two to two together. I was like, well, I've been on Lexapro for three years and I don't feel any different. So maybe I should go get a Medimap done. And sure enough, it's a, it was a hereditary thing that. The Lexapro doesn't, isn't effective for me either. So now I've been, I'm, I started seeing a psychiatrist, another, that a buddy, another buddy of mine recommended. So I go see the psychiatrist and I tell her all this and she's like, okay. And I bring her the Medimap stuff and all this. And, and she's like, let's change your, let's get you on medication. That's something that's going to be effective. So she switches me over to Pristique and immediately, I shouldn't say immediately, but within a month or two, I started feeling a little different, feeling a little better, but I'm still not happy with the therapy with the, and I've never had a time where I'm doing, getting, seeing a psychiatrist and seeing a therapist. It's always been one or the other. And I have not, maybe that's part of what I'm missing. But anyway, the psychiatrist, she's obviously, I'm, she's an older, and I think what's the word I want to dinosaur, if you will. So it's all you're, de you have depression, you have anxiety, you should not be drinking. I don't want to hear that you're drinking. Stop drinking. Oh, and I'm like, whoa, lady, this is what I do. Coincidentally, at one point I did decide that I was going to take a break from drinking for about a month, month or two. I was going to see how long I could last basically. And I made it a month or two. And we, and then it was our family beach vacation came up and I was like, I'm not going to not drink at the beach. But when it came back, I never told my psychiatrist that I had started drinking again. So she kept asking me, how's being off the bottle? It's great. I'm good. And complete fabrication, complete lie. And because I just didn't feel comfortable telling her that I, I didn't want to be honest with myself. I didn't want to be honest with her. So then I get an email, I don't know, a week, two weeks that says, Hey, I'm retiring. 
my psychiatrist is retiring. And I'm like, oh, cool. She's, I want you to continue care. I want you to promise me you'll continue care. And I said, okay. And she's, so go find someone. I don't know. It's like, what? So she, she sends you an email to say she's retiring and she's retiring in a week or it, two. It was a couple of weeks. I can't remember exactly, so I, still, I, but I, I had one more session with her. Okay. So, so a short time frame. Yeah. And, uh, but she didn't have, she gave me a couple of suggestions, but she wasn't like, I know this person, they're going to get you in. It was just like, yeah, call and see what happens. Maybe they'll get you in. I don't know if they're taking new patients. Like, and okay. this was 2017 or time frame. This would have yeah. been, yeah, yeah, maybe 18. 18. Okay. Ish, somewhere around there. I looked for a little bit for a new therapist. I wasn't really finding any, anybody that was either taking new patients or, but I wasn't trying really hard. I wasn't trying my hardest. Part of me was still in the mindset, like I'm on meds now, maybe I'm cool. Like I don't, so I just let it, I just let it ride. I'm still going to work. I'm functioning. I'm on shift work at this point, by the way, I got moved to shift work back in like 2012. So now I've been on shift work for six years and we work the 2448s with a set Kelly. So every three weeks I get a five day break, which is pretty awesome. What did I, I skipped a little bit. Of, 2017, I got married, had a kid, a second kid, and then 20. 2021 rolls around. We've now made it through COVID and all that stuff. When 2021 rolls around for those, say those three years, were you still under Prestique? Yes. I've been on Prestique to date Okay. Today. So you haven't broken that. No, nope, okay. I'm still on that. Just wanted to get a baseline to see where you're at yeah. with the medication, but you're not going to therapy at the time. Not correct? going to therapy currently. Okay. No. One of the... One of the guys, a whole family, actually, it's the Wilson family that I met when I joined Stonewall in 03. There's three siblings, Carrie was the oldest, Matt, and then Kevin was the youngest. Kevin was it. Kevin was away. He lived in the Outer Banks at the time when I joined. So I met Matt and I met Carrie at Stonewall and I had a, an instant connection with the Wilsons and I learned a lot. Matt took me under his wing amongst other guys, but Matt took me under his wing and we ended up, he ended up being a really big mentor in the fire service for me. And then eventually his brother came back and moved back up here, Kevin, and me and Kevin hit it off really well. And the three of us came, became really tight and we were basically our own crew as far as duty nights at the volunteer, at the volunteer house. And we were the West End truck crew for a while. Back then we didn't have the other trucks that we had now. We had Tower One and Truck 11 basically. And I learned a lot from Matt, from Kevin. They're both really smart guys, know what they're doing. We developed a, a really great friendship. Matt was a little tough to deal with sometimes. He had his moments, but he was our guy and he was great to have on our side. And, uh, and then I know that when we first talked about Matt, you described him as your asshole. Yes, he was an asshole, but he was our asshole and we loved him for it. And so now through because of COVID and everything, Matt and I grew apart. Nothing happened, just life, just life. His daughter, his daughter was special needs and required a lot of help. And between Matt and, and her and his daughter's mom, they did, they were doing for her what they needed to do. And, but we'd pick up when we could and we'd see each other when we could and we'd pick up right where we left off. Now, Matt also worked for the city for a little while until I think 20. I think 2012 or 2013, and then he left the city and he actually left the fire service altogether. So January rolls around January, 2021, we had just come through the, all the COVID stuff and we're hoping things are getting better. And that's the morning of January 26th and I'm sitting at home. I'm on a, I'm on a, a conference call meeting deal. And I get a phone call from one of the guys at work. 
he sounds different. He, hey man, are you sitting down? What are you doing? I'm just like, dude, just tell me what, something's wrong. What and he tells me Matt Wilson killed himself. And immediately my world stopped. And I, I remember like asking him, what are you sure? How do you know this? And he said, yeah. And he, uh, he explained the situation and how, why he's the one calling me, telling me this. And, and I'm home alone. My wife's at work. I'm home alone with our kids. My, I guess at what, at the time she would have been 10 and 10 and two. And I'm trying to hold myself together long enough to call my wife at work. And then of course I get on the, she answers, she gets on the phone which is, she worked at a school. So it's not like I could just call her cell phone or I had to go through the main office of school and say, Hey, I need to talk to. Yeah. It's you know. an ordeal, a procedure. So, and so she's, that doesn't, I don't typically call her when she's at school unless something's wrong and she gets, she answers the phone and I can't even get the words out. I'm just, I'm umming and umming. And of course now she's starting to freak out. Is something wrong with the kids? What's going on? Talk to me. And I was finally able to get it out. Matt Wilson killed himself. And she immediately, I'm on my way home. I'm on my way home. So she hung up the phone and I was able to go back inside with the kids and, and hold myself together until she got home. And I, uh, when she got home, I went out in the garage and I lost my mind. Absolutely lost my mind. When you say you lost your mind, what do you mean? Just, I can't remember the last time I had cried that hard. And I, it honestly scared me because I don't, I'm not much of a crier. Every once in a while watching a sappy movie, Titanic gets me, but this was like, the, and this took me right back because I did the same thing after I found out about Treo and then I start, I, I, and I compared, like I was looking back, I'm like, I was close to Trejo, but Matt and I were, we were inseparable sometimes. Yeah. I think you described it as almost like a brother. Yeah. And there, and basically more or less, I used to spend, spend holidays with them. I'd go over to their family's Christmas dinners and Thanksgiving dinners and we'd cut up and their mom, the Wilson's mom, she was also a member at Stonewall. And everybody referred to her as mom Wilson. She was everyone's mom. She was a station mom. But the way that had played out was Matt had gone missing the day before he, him and his girlfriend had gotten into an argument and, and I didn't know this. I didn't know. So we, the family was able to piece things together and everything. And it ended up coming out. A, a park ranger found Matt in, in the, out in the battlefields and he had shot himself. That quickly became the hardest thing that I've dealt with. Of course it did. And again, up until that point, mental health wasn't for me personally, like I knew about mental health. I'd obviously been trying to get some therapy in, but I did not have a good grasp on what I thought mental health was until after this. We, we did match service and I made it a priority to, I made it a priority to go on this advocacy for mental health stuff. So. Before we get to the advocacy, I have a question about Matt's openness with his mental health. Did he share this with you before? Cause you knew him for a number of years, 18 years, basically. Right? No. Yeah. And was he open about his mental health? No. Did, um, so nobody was aware of some of the struggles he was going through. People are aware that he had some mental health issues. Okay. But he was too proud to talk about it. He didn't want to be vulnerable. He okay. didn't want to be the same thing that we talk about now and breaking the stigma and it's okay to not be okay. And, but that just wasn't Matt. That was, you hold it in and you deal with it however you feel you need to deal with it. So then without the context of knowing that he had some issues, this is even more magnified. Yeah. Not that any suicide's not magnified. I don't mean to cheapen anything, but without even knowing that there were some issues going on, 
it, it has to be more magnified. Yeah, nobody expected this, especially now. He, Like I said, he had his daughter, and he was a great father. And just, yeah, that was probably the hardest part is coming to terms with the fact that he was he was hurting that bad that he could he would leave Addison. And that was one of the hardest, obviously the whole situation, hard to swallow pill, but that there, that really was like, holy shit. And that really put into perspective just how bad off he was, but nobody knew it. Some people may have known it. I didn't. You're a friend and you've been a friend for 18 years and you didn't have a, a knowledge of it. So he hit it pretty well. Okay. At least the tendencies. So you use this as a call to advocacy. What does advocacy look like in this case? In, I hate to sound, I hate to sound cliche, but I, I just touched on it a bit. I want to, I want people to know that there is, there are avenues and, and part of the reason that I'm here today, I want people to know that it's okay to come and talk about these things. We keep hearing break the stigma. We're not going to break it if we don't have anybody that'll talk and be open about it. So if I can help just one person by coming on here and telling my story, then I think I've done my job. It doesn't mean I want to stop there. I've also, I've recently just requested to be part of our behavioral health program at work. So we're getting stuff going there and getting, we just finally got access to a clinician who has a background in public safety, mainly police departments were her first fire department, but. And that clinician will be serving just the fire department for your city? She does. She does the police department as well. Okay. But you're not a huge, neither one is a huge department so that she'll be able to handle that. So that's good. And so each person will get eight, eight free sessions every fiscal year. So, and then people are obviously welcome to go find their own stuff that insurance will cover. Again, a little bit just about my struggles. I don't, again, I told you earlier, I consider myself lucky that I haven't had to see some of the things that other people have seen. And, and I've never, suicide's never been a, on my radar. I, when I say I've thought about it, sure. I think about it. Is it, what would it be like? How would I, but I've never considered it. If that makes sense. I've never sat on the floor with a gun in my mouth and wondered why I couldn't pull the trigger or anything like that. I don't have the suicide ideation. I've never visualized myself committing suicide. I deal a lot with irritability, anxiety, and every once in a while, my, my bucket fills up. Now I've also in my, uh, to, to, for my own personal care after Matt's death, I did contact the center of excellence, the IFF center of excellence, but unfortunately they, I went through all the onboarding stuff and they wanted me to come up, do inpatient. And un unfortunately my wife was eight months pregnant at the time and I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I didn't feel right leaving her eight months pregnant, not knowing exactly when she was going to have our son. I think that's completely understandable. Our son came and he was born on July 23rd, 2021. Matt's birthday was July 22. I was, I was hoping in one hand and, and hoping not in another hand, but I thought it would have been cool if he had, but again, that I don't know what that would have been like for me if he had actually come on Matt's birthday. So a day after I'm okay with that. Yeah. It's a little serendipitous. Yeah. But uh, I deal with a little of a hypervigilance and I know we've heard people talk about that before. I don't like facing walls. I don't like sitting with my back to the doors. Which if everybody could see us right now, he is sitting with his back to a door and he's uh, facing a wall because yeah. I don't like doing those things either. Right. So I'm facing a door and my back is to a wall. I get a little anxious every time my wife packs the kids up in the car and takes them out for a drive. I sit at home like waiting for that call, wondering when is that call going to come in that my family has just died in a car accident. So it's stuff like that. And then what do you, you know, you... 
other than I have not found a therapist that I have been able to, oh, let me digress. So center of excellence, I get to do, I get to do in virtual therapy. So I'm doing that once or twice a week. And again, it's just not something that I feel a connection with the therapist. And I'm, again, I didn't realize at the time, but now looking back, I was not open with her. I wasn't open with myself. She would ask me, how are things going? We talk about some family stuff. My son was born and he's been sick a little bit and blah, blah, blah. But I didn't open up about it. We talked a little bit about Matt stuff, but I don't sit there and, and tell her about me freaking out on my wife because I come home from a long shift and there's dishes in the sink. Why am I yelling at my wife? Because there's dishes in the sink. Not the fact that she was at home all day with wrangling around three kids and I slept at night at work and then came home and there's dishes in the sink. It's what I'd like to think of that as like a non-traumatic trigger, right? It's, it's oh, not it trauma, but it's, I go to work and we're so hell bent on keeping the station clean and, oh my God, you put a dish in a dishwasher or not in the dishwasher. You put it in the sink, put it in a dishwasher. Like it's empty. It's clean. And then I come home and I'm like, you motherfucker. That's a weird transition for most firefighters. I think yeah. to leave a shift and come home. Yeah. And then, and we hear it time and time again too. It's, I just went to work and I ran a, a bus full of nuns and babies that died. And then I come home and I'm in a little bit of a funk and my wife's what's wrong with you? I, how do I tell her that? Nothing, baby. I'm fine. I'm just hanging out. Like, why, why do you seem irritable? I'm just tired or whatever. It's that balance of, I need some space, but you don't need to know why I need that space. Yeah. So I try to, I'm trying to learn and teach myself different techniques that I can do to, to one of the things I've tried to do now is I know I'm going to do it. And I try to avoid it is when I come home from work, I just, I go straight upstairs, drop my bags off. And that way it gives me a little bit of chance rather than just coming right through the door and going AWOL. But even other, I've been trying breathing exercises or one of the things that I try to do to center myself is just putting music on, going out in the garage and putting music on and just hanging out and just bed. So I'm working on stuff for myself. And I'm still hopeful that at some point I'll find a therapist that, that works for me and that I can connect with and actually open up to. You relate a story to me, April this year. Uh, oh. About, you've already said you're on your medication, but you still drink. Yep. So what happened in April? So in April, I had been at, I believe I was at my part-time job and my wife and a couple of friends were all going to one of the breweries out near us. And so I, I told them, go ahead and I'll meet you guys out there when I get home. And so I, I went home, showered, changed, and I was in a, I was in a good mood, perfectly fine mood, but there was some things going, there were some things going on at work. I had just recently been, I had recently just been promoted to Lieutenant back in August of 21. There was some stuff going on at work and some stuff was piling up, but I, all in all, I felt generally felt okay. But I get to, I got to the brewery and I had, we had, there was like three different families there of our friends and kids running around and a good time. And I just, I slowly started feeling myself just the, just darkness creeping in. And to a point where there's a couple kids that I, we didn't even know playing soccer and they kicked the ball over towards us and it rolled over my son's blanket. My son's blanket was on the floor, just in the grass. He wasn't playing on it. The kid rolled the ball over, over the blanket and then he ran across the blanket to get it. And I almost flipped out on him, like just for the lack of, but I'm like, he's 12 or somewhere like that, but he's just a kid having a good time. And so my good mood, it just started fading. Um, and. I finally looked at my wife and I pulled her aside. I said, I have to go. And she didn't, this is the first time that I've 
made this realization that, that I just need to remove myself from this situation before it gets bad. So she said, what do you mean you need? I said, I need to go. I cannot be here anymore. So I told everybody, I, like, I tried to, as best I could to just. You make your cover. Yeah. yeah. And I just tried to be like, hey, y'all, I'm not really feeling well. But I got in my truck and it's a, from the brewery back to our house. And mind you, I had, I only had one beer in there. So it's not like I, this wasn't drunk emotion, just. This is raw, natural, just, I don't know why I feel this way, but it, it's a 15, 20 minute drive back to the house. And I cried my eyes out the entire ride home. And I have no idea why. Absolutely no idea. I felt good when I got home. And then the next morning I woke up, got in the shower and it all came right back. The whole darkness thing. Yep, in the shower. Just, I yeah. started crying in the shower and I was like, and I sat down, I finally sat down. And with my wife after that, and I said, let's talk about last night. And she's okay. I said, I don't know what happened. I told her about some of the things that were going on at work and stuff like that, that, and she knew it was nothing new, but I said, look, last night, I just, I don't know why. I don't know what, what happened. I don't know why that happened, but I, that's why I had to leave because, and I told her, I said, you saw it. I was getting irritated with those random kids that were just having a good time playing soccer. She's yeah, yeah, that was weird. And I was like, yeah, I know. That's why I removed my, cause it was only going to get worse if I had stayed there. So I think that one jumps out at me because by nature, I'm an introvert It's strange for me in the job that we're in and the fact that I do a show like this, but for me as an introvert, I've always had that. I've always had a feeling of, I need to go because mm -hmm. I've had too much. What I've noticed in the recent years is I get that feeling of darkness come over me and it's a different feeling. And I recognize that when you say that, because I've been to, been in those situations where a friend or whatever, look at me and say, what just happened? And I say, I'm not sure. And there's like a, a light, a switch just flipped on you. And it's learning that when that f switch flips, it's learning what to do. And that's, I'm still learning that. And I've mastered the art of the Irish exit Yep. because I don't want to explain it to people, but when it happened and you can't explain it to people. No. So I'm right there with you. I know exactly what you're talking about. And even, even me and you can try to explain it to each other because we've experienced it, but yeah, to wives, girlfriends, friends, strangers, whoever, what's wrong with you, dude? Nothing. I don't know. I've heard verbatim. What the fuck? Yeah. And I don't, I can't, I cannot explain it. It just happens. And there, there are times when I feel it happen and I'm able to mitigate some. But there are times where it happens in an instant and there's no mitigation. There's just, I got to go. So yeah, I recognize that completely. Yeah. Yeah. And that brings us up to today. So I'm just right now, my goal is to, again, try to find a therapist that I can connect with and then really dig in and explain all these things that I've sheltered or kept in or haven't been open about. Cause I, I realize now that I haven't been doing myself any favors. I've also gotten into a workout routine and that seemed to help a lifestyle change for me. Yeah. You've lost five pounds. Yeah. 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 I saw your post. Today. I slimmed down a lot. Yeah. Uh, I slimmed down a lot. I ha I haven't lost my goal weight. Obviously is I started at 205. Okay. And, uh, 205 ish. So I'm down about 10 pounds from when I started. Okay. I, my goal weight was one, 185. And I, and now that I realize, though, I'm not just doing cardio, but I've changed my eating habits and I've been in the gym lifting. So as I'm slimming down, I'm building muscle mass. So it's, I'm not really losing weight like I thought I would, but, and that's how my coach explained to me. That's why progress pictures are so important because. You may not see the numbers on the scale go down, which can be disheartening, but when you see the picture, it's holy crap. So not so much losing weight, but transformation. Yeah. Yeah. 
So if I can give a shout out to my boy John Wood, he was like he was a guy that I went to I went to high school with. Now we weren't close friends in high school, but we knew each other, and uh, and he it was funny when he started chatting me up through Facebook. And this is what I'm about to say is nothing I haven't told him to his face. So I don't want anybody to think I'm being down on him. But he saw that my my mental health stuff that I've been posting on Facebook and stuff like this had been. He started talking to me, and I'm like. I knew what he did and I knew he was like a fitness coach and life coach, stuff like that. And I was like, this motherfucker is going to try <laughs> and, and going to try and exploit money out of me knowing that I'm in a dark place right now. And uh, I gave him the, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. I let him talk to me. Here I am. I couldn't be happier, but for my guard was up at first. I was like, no way. So how long you been working with him? We started in April. Okay. Started in April. So a little over two months. Nice. And he's training locally. So no, he, they were living up here, but they actually just recently moved down to Wilmington. Okay. Carolina. But we do, we do a weekly check-in. So I, he just calls me on the phone. Unfortunately, I don't have the pleasure of just going and hanging out with him at the gym every once in a while, but it, yeah, it's working. So. Yeah. So that shout out's deserved then. I appreciate yeah. it. I wanted to touch base with you too about Matt again. Okay. I want to circle back because I think Matt is where we connected. That is. I saw the post and I connected with a couple of people and I got your name and number and, and I hooked up with you. Yep. I told, I was in a therapy session today, actually right before we met, about an hour before we met, I had just left my therapy session and I was asked, cause she knows I do the podcast mm -hmm. and she's actually listened and she asked why I do it. And I pinpointed Matt. I'm going to lose it. I'm glad I can cut this shit out. I pinpointed Matt as the turning point. I knew something was wrong. With you or? <laughs> I hate this. I hate no, to make it there's sound like always been something wrong with me. So anybody who knows me, who's listening to the show knows there's always been something wrong with me. And I'd say that facetiously, but there has been, I've just now recently started therapy. Right. Uh, no, I pinpointed Matt as a turning point that I realized something has to be done. Yeah. Cause Matt was number five in a year for the area. Yeah. That was the fifth firefighter in our Metro area. We lost in a year and they ran the gamut from veteran to rookie. And it was at that point we decided, I decided I had to do something differently. I had to be more open. The previous stuff I was doing was all funny and jokes and, right. and I continued some of that, but it also started to highlight the mental health. I guess my point is you talk about Matt and the, his action of suicide is, I don't know, for lack of a better word, regrettable, obviously something good's got to come from it. So for you to realize that you have to make changes for me to realize that something's got to change overall, that's where the good's got to come. Sure. Yeah. I don't know why they hit me like that. No, that's what this is all about, man. That's... Well, anyway, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's like I said, I just, I want to do whatever I can and maybe this story will touch one person. Maybe it'll touch 10. Yeah. Who knows? But, and that's the whole, the reason behind the show is to bring attention to everything. Sure. And if it's one person, 10 people, whatever, if I think I've relayed the story on the show before our rookie said one day that he thought he should get some therapy. And we asked why <clears throat> he said, cause I listened to you guys and I think I want to get ahead of it. Yeah. That's what I want to hear. Yeah. And I want that kid 
and I call him a kid. He's an adult, obviously. I want him to know a fire service that hasn't been, that's always been acceptable to talk. Sure. And if he can do that for 20 years or 25 years, we succeeded. Yeah. And that's, that's, I wish I, I wish I knew what I know now, 18 years ago when I started, yeah. obviously. Yeah. The classic saying. Yeah. So hindsight. <laughs> All right. So you're looking for a therapist still? Yeah. Yeah. How um, active is that search? So I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to start with the new gal at work Okay, and just see how that goes. I've talked to her already for a little bit, but that's not in the name of my own personal struggles. That's just trying to get things set up with her and coming in to meet all the crews at work and stuff like that. But she seems real down to earth. She curses like a sailor. So that's a relatable, obviously. Right. Like I said, her husband is law enforcement. So she's got, and she even, she even, she impressed me when she told me that when I was trying to say, here's my plan and the battalion chief, the health and safety battalion chief, we came together with this plan. We'll bring you in. We'll have everybody come down to the one station. Well, and you can sit there and you can deliver your message however you want, PowerPoint, blah, blah, blah. And she stopped. She said, I'm not going to come there where everybody feels forced to be there and bore everybody by PowerPoint. I said, because the second I walk into that building, when people know that it's happening, no longer going to have firemen in that building. You're going to have cockroaches Yep. and they're going to scatter. Yep. And so she, that, that was, I was like, okay, she at least has some knowledge or background in, and how we operate and how our, our MO, if you will. That's a, those are very wise words on her part. Yeah. And she gains respect just by saying that. Yeah. Yeah. So you'll start there and then how are things at home now? We're working on it. Okay. We're working on it. Obviously a typical marriage and we're not perfect and I love my wife and I hope to see it through to the end. I'm working on me. So it's a work in progress. All right. And we talked before, before we started, you told me that you were going to have an answer for one of my questions, but I'm going to mention it anyway, because yep. normally this is a point in the show that I ask about an everyday carry yep. and I just you don't have one. That's okay. I want to explain why I ask it. And it's the same thing I say every show. We, we carry something into, to our calls, aid bag, the irons, a hose line, whatever you carry into a fire, we all carry something in, but we all carry something out. And it's what we carry out is that what we're concerned with. Some people have an everyday carry. Some people don't. And I respect that you don't. Yeah. If I had to, if I had to pick something, it's very rare that you'll see me without a hat. I was going to say, I almost took a picture while you were talking and I was going <laughs> to post the rare time I've seen him without a there hat. You go. So, That's all right, I'll take that because every picture anybody's seen me in, I have a hat on yeah. as well. So yeah. I will take that. So let's talk about books. So Where do you I, want to start with that? I've recently gotten into, I suck at reading. I don't, I have a, one of two things happens. I get bored or I fall asleep. So I, within the last like year and a half, two years ago, I started trying to do audible and listening to books. Mm -hmm. I love, I love the idea of reading. I love buying books, but I, that's the thing is I have a whole bookshelf at home of books that I haven't touched, but then I've listened to them on Audible. And, uh, but I've been, I'm more into nonfiction, but uh, I'll tell you what, and nobody else, I'm surprised nobody else has brought it up. When I found out that Travis House was coming to Princeton County, I had no idea who he was. And a couple of the guys at work were, hey, we should go to this good program, good, good thing. And I said, who is that? And, uh, and I actually talked to Travis at one point and I told him the story. I said, who's that? They said, well, he's a, he was a Charleston fireman. He was a police officer, Marine, blah, blah, blah. And he, he does this whole thing about PTSD and mental health. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'm down. Let's go. And I didn't know what I was getting into. So before I, luckily it was, I had time. I downloaded his book on Audible and I listened to it. And I think about two days and that I didn't want to jump the gun. I, I wanted to bring this up earlier. That book sparked something in me. I finally found something or someone who 
maybe not well, but could articulate all the feelings that I have been feeling for years. But I didn't know it. And that book resonated so hard with me and turned me on to so many like uh, ideas and holy shit. It was like the second coming of Christ for me. I listened to the book and then I went and saw him live when he was at the police association hall. And it was just like, I, I wish I would have known it was okay to bring my wife because I would have loved to, to have her come and listen. Cause there's a lot of stuff in there that anyway, he'll tell you a lot of stuff in there for is good for spouses to hear and stuff like that. His book, finding your own light. I definitely recommend that one. It may, again, one book may be good for one person, not for another. That book was stellar for me. And then I went back and listened to all his podcasts. And like I said, I find that I relate. There was a lot of relation in that to me and some of the things that he feels and, and talks about. I was, I was gifted his book. I want to say November of last year, a friend of mine, AJ at work, he gifted. I sat down. Oh, I don't know. I sat down one evening and opened it up, started reading. The next thing I know, I'm halfway through it. And I was like, oh shit, I got to go to bed. Yeah. So I went to bed, got up. I think the next afternoon I was like, all right, fuck it. I pick it back up. By dinner time, I was done with the book. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had a way of telling a story and a way of relating those experiences, which is powerful, but yet simple. I also was at the presentation right. and I would definitely suggest that book to people. Yeah. And what I did was I took that book. I bought a copy for every young guy in the firehouse and I gave them for Christmas. I gave them a, a copy of that book. Nice. I, I think it's that impactful. Yeah. Absolutely. And like I said, when I usually do the, the audibles, I'll play in my car, driving to and from work or driving. I was listening to another book on my way here today, but that book, yeah, I was, like I said, I think I finished it in two days and the, like I left work the one, the second day or whatever. And I left work and I was going home and I had 45 minutes of the book left. My, my commute only, no, I think it was longer than, I think it was like an hour and 15. Cause my commute's about 40 minutes. And I, I purposely the longest yeah. route I could <laughs> past my house, circled back around. Cause I was like, I don't want to get home with five minutes of this book left. No. So. Yeah. That's a good choice. What I'll do is I will, I'll link to the book, but I'm also going to link to the Charleston nine story. Yeah. Cause I, if people don't know it for the people who aren't familiar with the fire service, the Charleston nine yeah. is a powerful story. And it was a learning experience for the whole fire service. Yeah. That was another good, I had the opportunity a couple of years ago. I went to the Virginia fire officers Academy and it's not part of the program, but we had a special guest speaker and it was Dr. Dr. Dave. From okay. Charles, I can't remember his last name's escaping me, but he was the engine driver, the wagon driver of the first in engine. And so he gave her much like Travis. He went, he tells his story about this is just the way we've always done it. And I didn't do training and I was the first in wagon driver and I failed those guys and blah, blah, blah. And in all his struggles and you know how he's become, and now he's a PhD battalion chief with still with Charleston. So nice. Yeah. I'll try to link something about him as well yeah. then and get the word out. Right on. All right, man. I appreciate it. It was a good it. conversation. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. So hopefully you relaxed and you enjoyed it some. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, a little bit out of my comfort zone, but here I am. So. Our, this whole process has been out of right. my comfort zone, so I'm good with that. It's not so. supposed to be comfortable. No, exactly. It, but it's important, and I appreciate right. you coming on. Absolutely. All right, man. Thanks. Yep. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves. And remember to check in on each other.